This is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin, and my guest today is a Flemish poet and author. She's published two award-winning collections of poetry, and she's known for her distinctive spoken word performances. Her latest book is Bold Ventures, 13 Tales of Architectural Tragedy, recently translated into English. It was a Dutch bestseller. It's been shortlisted for various prizes. It gives 13 accounts of architects whose design errors proved fatal, as they took their own lives or are rumoured to. It's a personal, reflective and philosophical exploration of the connection between creation and creator. Charlotte Vandenbroek, welcome to Meet the Writers. Hi. This is such a beautiful book and I want to go into it in some detail in a moment, but I want to start off just talking about you and your life. You were born in Belgium. Tell me about your early life. Well, I grew up in a small regional town called Turnhout, uh, which is also the scenery of the first chapter of my book. Well, my early life was very small, I think. I never left... um, Belgium until I was 18, so I never traveled when I was a kid, for example. So I had a very, um, how how shall I put it, I was very much focused on my inner life as a child, so to say. I was always reading and and making up stories and playing and uh, I think this interest in traveling and researching and getting to know the world really came through books for me. So, mm. so, It seems odd to me, though, that somebody who, who was so kind of invested in her inner life then chose to do an MA in drama, which is all about being out there. Hmm. Maybe some forms of drama are, but uh, the um, education I did is called verbal arts. So it's a very specific form of drama, which is more in the tradition of text theatre. So you are basically on stage as a narrator, or you focalize characters rather than that you become the character so um, in a way it very much suited my love for stories and not so much my love for um, for acting or being exposed or so um, it really enriched my writing practice more than my sense of performativity I think yeah. mm. although you are very known for your distinctive performances you search for a sort of dramatic approach to to what's described as the speakability or the physicality of oral poetry can you just unpick that for me my poetry is very sensory well of course a lot of poetry has this quality but I really search for meaning through these uh, sensory aspects And on stage, giving voice to uh, musicality, to rhythm, to texture of sound, to make words tangible. It's a sort of embodiment of language uh, that you can do through voice, through being present, through speaking with and through your body. So that's a sort of um, the dramatic aspect I would really, I really search in this area of embodiment on stage, yes. And tell me how you started writing poetry. What sort of age were you? Well, when I left Turnhout when I was 18, I went to study German and English literature in Ghent. And um, I had a few very powerful encounters with poetry uh, during my studies. For example, I remember that I was 18 years old and um, our professor in German literature um, put on a recording of Paul Celan's Todesfüge, very famous poem. And I'm so happy that he chose to put on a recording and not just give us the text back then, because it was um, 
it really struck me. It was a very powerful experience to hear this very rhythmic language. I still know the poem by heart. Schwarze Milch der Frühe, wir trinken sie morgens, wir trinken sie abends, wir trinken und trinken. It's, it's really, it, it went through my body, really. It was a very visceral uh, response to hearing this text. And of course, uh, it's a very, it's a, about a horrible subject that I couldn't really get in this first listening, of course, but I felt that there was so much underneath these words that I, it made me a bit megalomanic, <laughs> I think. Uh, and I thought, wow, it's so powerful to be able to do this with language that I wanted to try as well to write. Yeah. What's the poem about? Well, Todes Fuge is um, about Paul Celans. He's a Romanian, Jewish Romanian poet who um, had an experience in the concentration camps during the Second World War. So it's a bit of a lamenting text, yeah. Your debut collection was called Chameleon. That came out in 2015 and it won a big prize for debut poetry. Tell us about that collection. It's a very playful collection or um, there was a lot of play in writing it. It's about sort of subversive uh, feminist coming of age poems, you could say. During my studies, I um, I read a lot of uh, feminist authors and feminist theory and but I also loved the romantic German tradition there is a Friedrich Schiller the uh, romantic uh, writer and philosopher I read this quote from him was in his letters on aestheticism and he said about women that they have no um, particular talent except for pretending to be naive Yes, and this um, really made me so mad. It really frustrated me and um, it got me really angry. And at the same time, I thought, well, maybe he has a point. Maybe it is a strategy. If men have these ideas about women, maybe women can use this as a strategy also. So with these two thoughts in mind, I started playing around with what is it like to be female? What is it like to be naive or to pretend to be naive? What is naive landscape? How does it work in the gaze of the other, uh, in looking at yourself, in trying to relate to other women, other bodies, lovers, you know, so that's a bit of the, uh, the field that all these poems were uh, researching within. Yeah. Your second collection came out in 2017. Tell us about that. It too won prizes. It's called Nachtruhr, which is a we chose to leave it um, untranslated, this word. It's not a real word, even in Dutch, but it's the name of a late night store. It's almost a word in the way that it has a lot of reverberations of meaning. Nacht means night and roer means both the, the steering wheel of a ship, but also to be stirred, to be moved, to be touched. So it has. it's the stem of a lot of verbs that... Um, that have movement in it, um, inner movement as well as outer movement. So I thought this word was a beautiful um, starting point to start thinking and writing about um, wandering, about being displaced, feeling displaced in um, a city, but also in your own mind or your own body. And it starts very, this, this book of poetry starts very autobiographically in a sense that the first eight poems are a retrograde, so um, of a lost relationship of eight years. So it's eight times 12 lines of poetry that start from the end uh, of the relationship back to the very beginning. And from this very autobiographical 
prelude, you could say, this idea of uh, losing, being lost, is worked through in a more uh, philosophical way. Do you write with rhyme? Yes, but not um, with fixed rhyme. So I write with inner rhyme, sound rhyme, assonance, so half rhyme, but not uh, in, a, in a fixed rhyme scheme, so to say. So it's not classically uh, written. So your poetry has been translated into German, to French, to Spanish, to Afrikaans, to Serbian and also to English. How on earth do your translators manage then to keep those rhyme structures that you've just described? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a very, very interesting question and also um, search always. Some translators like to really collaborate, which I like, and other translators want to be more autonomous and... um, It's different in every language, of course. For example, in English, my poems have a totally different meter just because of simple, basic language uh, facts that some words have less syllables in English. So the rhythm of the word is different. So you have to accept that. And then you have to look for ways to make a new rhythm together with the translator. So it's it's a bit heartbreaking sometimes to, to lose a bit of music or a bit of rhythm, but it's also very interesting to see change and also become something new. So, Do you recognize those poems once they're translated as still what you intended? I see them as a joint effort. Uh, so they are definitely my poems, but they're also partly the poems of the translator. So sometimes it's a bit weird to, to just read them uh, silently in a book, but I, I really prefer when I get the chance to to read, for example, in England or in the UK, that I can perform in Dutch to give a sort of taste of the musicality of the poem, but then the meaning is also available so that you have this dual way of of getting to know the poem. So this multilingualism is is very rich and interesting to, to perform with also. And I wonder about your relationship with the translator. Do you have to become very close? Does the translator have to start thinking like you? <laughs> um, I hope not. For example, with the translator of Bold Ventures, David McKay, he um, is also very much a lover of art and painting. So, for example, I went to the museum together with him and um, it was very nice to see that we share uh, some sensitivity for this form of art or in the way that we look at things, look look at details of painting. So for me, this was a very um, dear experience, but most of the time we just communicate through email or we Zoom sometimes, but it's not that we really have the opportunity to see each other during the whole of this process. So, but it, it it is very nice also for the subject of the book that there is some sort of common interest or common Uh, love for the subject. So I really feel very lucky to have that. Now, in 2016, you were the joint youngest writer to hold the opening speech at the Frankfurt Book Fair. That's a huge honour. What did you talk about? And actually, how old were you at that point? (laughs) I was 25, yes, when uh, I got asked to hold the opening speech for the Frankfurt Book Fair together with Arnon Grunberg, my Dutch colleague. We, well, he lives in New York, actually, partly in Amsterdam, but mainly in New York. And we didn't really know each other before. We never spoke or or I knew one book of him. Uh, He never heard of my work, of course. So we started writing each other letters 
So we had this um, correspondency for a few months and uh, we just started asking each other questions and these questions became very, so some were personal, but in this meeting of getting to know one another, there's also a, of course, a, a more philosophical uh, layer of meeting another, uh, a stranger, and how do these two come together and what is it that we share, which was the, the main focus of the host, hosting country of that year, and what is different and how can we uh, struggle through these differences or come closer. So it was really um, a very playful way of thinking about questions of this, of this sort, yeah. I want to turn now to the book Bold Ventures because it is absolutely extraordinary. Each chapter tells a different story of an architect driven to suicide or, or rumoured to have been driven to suicide by their design failures. Where did this come from? <laughs> the book starts with a Heimat story of my hometown of uh, Turnhout, where I grew up. During my childhood, we had this um, yeah, very both cynical and funny um, events surrounding our swimming pool. So they decided to build this new construction, uh, very expensive, 10 million euros it cost. And um, it was never open. So all of the time, all sorts of peculiar defects led to the swimming pool being closed for several weeks, several months. It was never open for longer than three consecutive months. So... Um, <laughs> It, for example, the, the, the electric system failed or the, the lifeguard got beaten up by a kid or the humidity in the air got so high that everyone fainted or you, really, you can't really think of, it's almost apocalyptic, uh, all these stories uh, put together. And um, there was, of course, a lot of uh, frustration about this because all the people of Turnout paid taxes to have this uh, to have this shiny new swimming pool and it was never open. So there was a bit of tension and ground for gossip surrounding this whole story. And there was a lot of irony about it. And then all of a sudden the swimming pool got closed permanently and uh, no one knew why. So everybody kept silent about uh, the reason for this closure. But uh, of course, soon we found out that uh, it was built on swamp ground, on marshy ground, and it was sinking in this swampy soil in a very dangerous manner that the electrical installation was um, in touch with rising groundwater. So it, there could have been electrocutions at any given time. It was really a, a um, design flaw. And people started to explain this by uh, saying, well, what kind of architect would have designed the uh, technical installation on swamp? How could he live with himself? And this, all these ideas about um, this form of, of failing in a, as a public figure or in a public building led to the story in the bars of my hometown that he, the architect, took his own life in, in this room, in this technical room. So there's a lot of uh, grim sentiments surrounding the swimming pool and the story. But actually, I never really thought about it as being being harsh or dark or... Or judgmental. I just, I just kind of accepted that. Ah, well, if yes, I, I understand that he did this, that he would have done this or something, and we all thought it was true. This story, and then years later, I went to Vienna and I heard basically the same story, namely that the Viennese Opera House, the 
Vienna State Opera House was um, told to be sinking in the street and that the architect also took his own life in the same way that uh, the turnout, uh, the architect of the turnout swimming pool did. And that made me think, made me want to investigate the similarity between these two stories. And then I did something very deontologically irresponsible. <laughs> and I uh, typed on Wikipedia, architects who committed suicide. <laughs> and I immediately, I was uh, in this process of, uh, I always compare it to how bacteria multiply. You have two, it becomes four, it becomes eight, it becomes 16. And before I knew it, I was in this uh, dark corner of architectural history. Uh, there were so many stories that I thought maybe there is some cultural, historical aspect to venturing in public space, building in public space, and having it become a complete personal or private uh, or personal failure in your private life. So I was very interested in this dynamic and what it could be. And I mean, the, the central question I guess you're asking in this book, which sort of transitions between philosophical contemplations, historical accounts, journalistic passages. I mean, it's it's part memoir, there's travelogue in there, and we'll get to those different forms. But the central question is, what makes a mistake larger than life, so all-encompassing that your life itself becomes a failure? Where's the line between creator and creation? And do you think that you come close to answering that? Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> and I'm very happy for that. It's an impossible question. But I think when I started out, I really hoped that I would come close to an answer. But I learned throughout writing the book that a question can also be answered with more questions that can even bring you closer to something than just uh, figuring it out, so to say. So... Of course, I'm also dealing with a very complex and painful subject, suicide. And I'm very happy that it didn't become too reasonable, if I can say it like that, but that it just got complexer and complexer. So I don't think that the book provides a, a very clear answer to this question, but it, it engages with the question. And it's also funny. I mean, it's kind of darkly comical. You you tell in the first person. Just talk us through the, the way you've structured this, because as I was saying, there's, there's memoir in there, there's travelogue, you reference classical mythology. Tell us about bringing all those strands together. It was a very playful process. I actually didn't have so much experience writing prose or, or nonfiction, but I did have a lot of technique from poetry. And I actually just translated the way I write poems into uh, this writing process in the way that I had a very, I allowed myself to associate very freely to, for example, compose uh, the different stories or essays or texts through images that uh, resonate with each other, that mirror each other. So for example, you have a scene in the first chapter where I have a memory of dr almost drowning as a child in the swimming pool during swimming lessons. And then um, swimming pools come back throughout the novel. And in the end, there's also a scene with, uh, where drowning is involved. So I really tried to make images that, um, that form a certain path throughout the book. Or for example, another motif is snow. Snow comes back, uh, comes back very often as well. So I think there is a lot of... Um, poetic endeavor in the way the book is composed as a whole, but also the different chapters. 
and I um, I just allowed myself to be present in the book also because at first I thought oh this is going to be I was reading I was researching uh, Jürgen Habermas the social sociologist and reading Camus and Cioran and all these philosophers and I thought oh I'm really going to write a very maybe almost academic text about this subject and then the more I well got involved the more I started thinking well it's not fair to not be to not be present because these these architects for very straightforward reasons I couldn't interview anymore but I had all these questions I wanted to ask so I thought it's only fair that in a way I ask them to myself so that's how I became present in the book and this gave me a lot of freedom because I could document my uh, research trips my my own uh, experience with the buildings because of course I'm not an architect so I can't write from a very technical perspective but I I am, as everyone is, a member of public space and an onlooker of architecture. So I really wanted to have this um, empiric factor also in uh, encountering the buildings. So that's how the travel log got involved. And another thing that was really important for me as a writer in, in writing this book was that I very much, although it's a, it's a totally different profession, I very much related to this radical idea of the entanglement of life and art that I saw in these architects and the way they handled their successes and their failures, which for me, of course, as a poet, plays on a very small scale. Because if I write a poem and it really sucks and it fails and it's miserable, then it doesn't really affect anyone but myself. But I could really relate to this idea of of feeling failed as a person also, not just as a poet who wrote a bad line of verse. So I wanted to, in a way, also learn how to cope with the idea of failure, I think, being an, uh, an artist myself, yeah. Because it seems also that shame is something that links all of these deaths. Yeah, very much public shame. And um, that is something that is very, you're very, very, very exposed. I, I, I came to learn as an architect, um, your work is very exposed, but also you are a public figure and you have to combine a lot, a lot of different traits. An architect, for example, is an artist. He creates, he designs, he or she or they, they create, they design, but they also uh, are very technically skilled, so there is, is a lot is a very technical component. But also, I came to learn that most architects are diplomats in a way that they have to uh, navigate so many different institutions for funding, but also for, for example, getting all these different permissions. And uh, so it's a very diplomatic role you have also, but it's also a ideological profession because there is a very, for me, very distinctive ideological components to building, to building a city, to intervene in public space. So I just want to point out that there are so many different different skills needed in this profession that I can easily imagine that this causes a big struggle, an internal struggle, but also a daily struggle in your profession. So I think it's also what I got back from uh, architects who read the book that... Um, that it's an invisible struggle most of the time. 
I'd like to just dip into some of the other chapters. So, for instance, you go to a tiny village in northern France to look at a church spire that's crooked. Tell us a little bit about that. That was a very fun, I have very, very uh, fun memories of this uh, trip. It's um, the Saint-Omer church in Vergennes, a very, very small town in the north of France. And it has a, a crooked and twisted spire. So... I also found a church near Ghent in, in Belgium and apparently there were a lot of churches like this and all these churches were haunted with the same story, namely that the tower got twisted and crooked and the architect leaped off this tower and uh, killed himself. So um, it's uh, almost an urban legend, you could say. And then I came into contact with the Association for Twisted Spires in Europe, which is a French organization. And they were very enthusiastic about my uh, interest in these crooked churches, and they decided to meet me in this town. So the the chapter is basically about this meeting. We go together to visit the church, and uh, I really have a very warm heart for people who are interested in folklore. So these people obviously are almost too too well researched into this subject. Um, but this is a very precious form of knowledge, I think, but it's also uh, comic in a way, yeah. Just before we go, I just I, I really want to get across to our listeners how beautifully written this is. It's incredibly poetic. I just wanted to read a couple of lines. This is where you're you're in an archive in, in Malta and you're talking about the fact that many of these books have been infected by a woodworm. You say, a treasure chamber of archives, a thousand years of documentation, all being gobbled up, millions of minuscule worms. I reel at the image of them creeping, invisible, across the books, the bookcases, everything itching, the books longing to scratch themselves until they bleed, until their ink gushes out of the paper and leaves the pages blank. It's just incredible writing. Do you think that that comes from being a poet? Well, it was also beautifully read. Thank you for <laughs> that. <laughs> uh, well, I, I, I don't know. I love images. I love imagery. I love getting um, languages so, so powerful in making something uh, not only visual, but also feelable. So I really, I aspire for this in literature. So I, I really want to explore in this way. So I am so, so happy it comes across as a, a striking... Uh and I mean that your description is not only of the building, but also of food. You can taste them. It's quite, quite extraordinary. I wonder if, I wonder if we could look a little bit at your relationship with food. <laughs> well, there's a, a scene in the book uh, where I'm in Malta researching this library in Valletta with my uh, friends. And we go to this uh, very, we indulge in this delicious uh, culinary tradition of Malta and uh, we eat for eight courses so there's a lot of abundance there's a lot of flavors there's a lot of smells also and uh, I really wanted to create this la grand boeuf scene where um, we talk about why why is it that we are so uh, also monomanically ambitious or uh, focused on work or being great in what we do we all have very different professions and at the same time we indulge in this meal that keeps on coming and coming and coming so I really wanted to have this um, overload of of ambition also have in this uh, in this eating in this very rich table so and I thought what is the best way to write about food that is um, to just 
name all of it, to stack it on top of each other, to make it smell and make it taste and just make it abundant. That was a very playful, playful scene to write. Yeah. Crushed garlic with fresh parsley served with local water crackers, sea salt and olive oil, olives from the garden, pickled in honey with a stripe of chilli paste, pureed fava beans with cumin, sea salt and olive oil. I mean, it's just, it's absolutely mouthwatering. And all you're doing is listing ingredients, but you do it in such a, a wonderful way. I cannot recommend this book highly enough, uh, Charlotte. I think it's absolutely fabulous. What is your next venture? Because I just can't wait. Well, I'm very excited. I, um, I started researching for a new book and I am planning to write about the Tasmanian tiger. So it's a new, um, new adventure. Well, I can't wait to read it. Uh, Charlotte, thank you so much. Bold Ventures, 13 Tales of Architectural Tragedy by Charlotte Vandenbroek and translated by David Mackay is published by Chatter and Windus and it's out now. And you've been listening to Meet the Writers. Thanks to producer Nora Hull and researcher Lillian Fawcett. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>